Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. On the 11th of April 1963, the Beatles released From Me To You, their third single, but it was a first in other regards. Their first standalone single, the first single after their Please Please Me album had come out, the first single released to a truly expectant audience, and, depending on what charts you're looking at, their first number one. For many bands, it would be a pinnacle, a highlight, but for the Beatles... Maybe you could say it's taken on a backseat, in particular when compared to its immediate successors, She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. That's something, that's a, a, a right that we need to wrong or a wrong that we need to right, isn't it, Stephen? It's a, it's a, it's a wrong that we need to right, I think, is yeah. what you're saying. <laughs> Start as we mean yes. to continue. Yes. Start as we mean to continue. No, you're ab- absolutely correct. I mean, it, it, this is a song that I think just, it's, it's not on a UK album. It, it has an odd history in the US uh, and it just gets overlooked. But I think it's, pivotal in in so many ways it is pivotal and you know just to remind ourselves the chronology of singles is love me do is the debut please please me is the second single please please me is the one that captures the most success and propels the beatles to their first level of fame that rolls into the please please me album and then the rest of the singles for 63 are from me to you she loves you and i want to hold your hand at the end of the year and Mm. so those four 63 singles yeah we we do feel that from me to you doesn't get a fair crack of the whip because it's a it's a song that really shows that they they're not one hit wonders yes uh but the songs that the singles that immediately came after it Mm. are just so huge and are really i suppose are what it's that's the wave of Beatlemania is with She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. So although From Me To You is their first number one, uh, it does, I think, just get slightly lost in the slipstream of what comes immediately afterward. So when we look at the chronology or the story of From Me To You, what's hugely amusing is just how fast everything happens. And first thing that's very interesting about From Me To You, it's, you know, it's that th- difficult third single, so to speak, but it is written um, at a point in time when they've had singles out, they're experiencing their first wave of success. Yeah, uh, 1963 is phenomenally busy for them uh, in terms of touring and getting around the country and showing themselves. But 
you know, because they've had success, they are writing from me to you, John and Paul, from a point of view of, well, actually, we need a hit. Yes, yes. I think I think this is exactly the point at which they 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 start delivering songs, uh, if not on order, but with specific uh, uh purposes in mind you know this will be an album song but this is the single yeah um and there's, there's a quote from george martin where he said i asked them for for another song as good as please please me and they brought me one from me to you there seemed to be a bottomless well of songs and i mean that's a very sort of prosaic statement by george martin in the context of what we because we all know what followed but it it you, you imagine him just saying okay i need something else as good as that and they go okay here Yes. And they just give him the next hit and then they give him the next hit and then they give him the next hit. Um, and this is really where they they start off on that treadmill. Yeah. Um, he asked them to deliver a hit single. So that's what they do. They go away and they write a hit single. So Please Please Me, the single has come out at the start of January 63. And the Beatles start to get national recognition. They appear on Thank Your Lucky Stars, yeah. which is watched by a large audience. And that propels the single up into the top 10. And, uh, you know, it's controversial to say that Please Please Me doesn't get to number one, but in the record retailer chart, it doesn't get to number one. And that's the chart that carries through to the, the national chart in the UK yeah. today. So that's why Please Please Me gets this label of not being a number one. It's not included on the one album, for instance. But there was about five parallel singles charts running in the UK at that time. And on the other four, Please Please Me did actually get to number one. But either way, the Beatles, when we get into the second month of 1963, they're in the top 10 for the first time. They're at, they're in the top two, depending on what chart you look at for the first time. And they're getting out and about. They're on tour. And there's, uh, you know, the, the Please Please Me album is what comes out in the slipstream of that. And the Please Please Me album is recorded in February and it's uh, due to come out on the 22nd of March. But that's not enough. Like maybe other less... Uh, busy bands might have just pulled a third song from that album or, you know, kicked the album forward a week or two and, and put a single out from that. But this is happening in parallel that actually your album is on the way uh, to being released, but a third single is needed. And so if we're doing a timeline, it seems that it's the, the last day of February 63 that From Me To You starts to be born. Yes, I mean it's 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 almost as if we have a kind of sat nav. We can tell exactly <laughs> when and exactly where uh, this song was written. So it was, uh, as you say, twentieth of February, nineteen sixty-three, and they were on a bus heading to Shrewsbury. We can be that specific. <laughs> it's <laughs> all very. Like, it's like that movie, Enemy of the State, where we're just zoning in on where we're just where zoning at. in. So they were they were they were touring, as you say. They 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 they've had success. The way that worked in in Britain uh, in 1962, 1963 was you went on package tours and uh, they were touring as part of a package with uh, a tour that was being headlined by Helen Shapiro. Okay. And, you know, it's the reason why I think For Me To You is interesting is, as I said, they've had this success, but, you know, Lewison's book, uh, which covers up to the end of 1962, one of the interesting things about that book is it kind of... Uh, takes away this myth that John and Paul were sitting on a mountain of songs. They were not sitting yes. on a mountain of songs. They were really writing the songs as they were coming out and as they were needed. And yes. they are learning themselves how to write songs. They're learning which parts of a song make a hit song and how to find their own voice. And From Me To You is, as we said, it's written from scratch. And it's one of the songs that's written John and Paul face to face together. It's not somebody bringing a song that's partially complete to the other. 
No, this seems to be a genuinely spontaneous uh, creation. As you say, frequently what was happening was one of them would have a chorus or one of them would have a verse or the start of a melody line or something, and then they would get together and work on it. This literally seems to be them, uh, you know, uh, sitting on the back of a bus with some guitars and uh, fooling around. And, and, and then they come up with a melody line and it just flows from there. And by the time they get off the bus in Shrewsbury, it's done. It's done. So we've got a couple of quotes from John when he's talking about this. So, uh, you know, pulled from uh, the anthology book. The night Paul and I wrote from me to you, we were on the Helen Shapiro tour on the coach, traveling from York to Shrewsbury. We weren't taking ourselves seriously, just fooling around on the guitar when we began to get a good melody line and we really started to work at it. Before that journey was over, we'd completed the lyric and everything. I think the first line was mine and we took it from there. What puzzled us was why we thought of a name like From Me to You. It had me thinking when I picked up the enemy to see how we were doing in the charts. And then I realized we got the inspiration from reading a copy on the coach. Paul and I had been talking about one of the letters in the from us to you column. So that was the letters page from the NME. Yeah. It just tease them off. It's very and it's subconscious. It's, it's, it's simple, as simple as that. Simple as that. And, uh, you know, this is this is indicative of perhaps the way Lennon would write for a long time after that. He would just take inspiration from newspapers or, you know, antique posters or whatever, what have you, something just sparks uh, a line and then they pick it up and, and, and run with it. Um, you know, sometimes in 1980, he remembers it, that they were in a car rather than in a, a coach, but it does yeah. seem to be, they were part of this tour, they were traveling and it was, they didn't have the song when they got on the coach and they did have the song when they got off the coach. Yes. Um, and uh, and it was a number one single. So they knew they had something special. And as you say, they're learning on the fly how to do this. They're thinking about hooks. They're thinking about, uh, you know, you know, the lyrics. How do we, you know, at this point about addressing it to fans? Because already they're learning that craft and, and uh, you can be cynical about that, but there's also a sort of naivety about that, you know, yes. there's, there's, there's in the way that they, they give voice to that. It's something that they've talked about a lot, this notion of the, 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 the pronouns that they would use in their early singles. So, you know, please, please me, I saw her standing there. Um, and now from me to you, she loves you. I want to hold your hand. And it's one of these kind of oft stories of Beatles lore that, uh, you know, they were, they were doing that for the fans that they, you know, weren't writing songs themselves that they were, you know, trying to explicitly use these words. And I used to think that, is this something that they noticed after the fact, but John was talking about it in interviews contemporaneously at the time, wasn't he? Yes, there's a there's an interview in, in 1964, and he he actually says that you know this is why we often have you and me in the titles of our songs. It's the kind of thing that it helps listeners to identify with the lyrics. We think this is very important. The fans like to feel that they are part of something that is being done by the performers. So, uh, as I say, on the one hand, they're they're learning this very quickly. They've latched onto this. We have an audience. We have to um, you know we have to cater for that. We ha we have to build on this. It's can be seen as quite cynical, but the fact that he's prepared to give an interview and say, oh, yes, this is this is what we do. There's something quite, as I say, charming or quite naive about yeah. the fact that he's saying this is, yes, this is what we do. And the fans, you know, we have to bring the fans with us. But it's part of it's it is part of the Beatles unique selling point. I think that was that, you know, when they first came on the scene, the reason that people loved them was that they were a gang. And, yeah. you know, people wanted to be part of that gang. And it's very appealing that they are creating their own music 
with the voice of this gang and it's it's inclusive to the people who you know want to listen to them and want to join them so you know i i don't think they realized just how important that was that they were using their opportunity to speak in their own words and they were using it as something inclusive to to bring fans along with them i mean they'd had years of this in you know the cavern mm. where you know paul still talks fondly and in interviews about people coming up and say, you know, will you play this song for Margie or will you do this or, you know, <laughs> handing little notes in. And so, so they're used to tailoring their sets. They're used to having a very kind of close mm. interaction with the fans. So I suppose they move from the tiny confines of, of, of the cavern to, you know, uh, appearing on television and or reaching out to people via their records. How do they do this? They tailor the songs to, to, to try and create that same sense of intimacy between, between the performer and the, and the listener. And so they're on tour at the time, and it's nominally the Helen Shapiro tour, which is a theatre-based, uh, you know, uh, tour, as you say, with a bill of people on it that goes from the start of February to the start of March 63. There's only about 14 shows, so it's on and off, and she's sick for a few shows. Yeah. Helen Shapiro is interesting because she is younger than the Beatles. Yes. Uh, Helen Shapiro, I'm guessing that nobody outside of the UK and possibly no one younger than my father will remember <laughs> Helen Shapiro. Um, but yeah, it, it, she she was 14 in 1961 when she had her first number three hit single, uh, Don't Treat Me Like a Child, which... <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, anyway, um, and, and then she had a two number one hits, You Don't Know, and Walking Back to Happiness, which is the song that I know. I, yes. I, I've heard that song and it pops up in kind of, you know, uh, early... 60s compilation albums uh, that, that that's well, the to my mind as a as an 80s child Helen Shapiro is one of these people who'd be popping up on things like Blankety Blank and all the rest just yeah. as a kind of a you know just a general all-purpose celeb and even if you think in the 1980s you know if she's 14 in 1961 she's still only in her 30s in the 80s and she's still <laughs> this grand old lady of showbiz. The grand dam of uh, yes yeah but she, but but she was selling you know her number one hit sold over a million copy copies uh Tell me what he said was number two. So her first four singles get hit the top three. Yeah, um, and she was recording uh, at Abbey Road, and her recording manager at that time was Nori Paramore, who is George Martin's nemesis. At this yes, point, you know? he is the the, the one eyebrowed baby. If you follow the Simpsons yeah. or to um to George's <laughs> Maggie Simpson. Um. Yeah. So yeah. So that might explain why. Um, you know, John and Paul were potentially writing a song for Helen that she never got. Yes. So uh, again, you, you've got to slightly feel sorry for Helen Shapiro because she is she's from that era and that style of entertainer who are just swept away by um, the Beatles. So her last top ten hit is uh, gets the number eight in 1962. The Beatles are writing a song and they offer her the song Misery. Mm. But uh, Nori Paramore turns it down. And you think she didn't have another top 10 hit after the Beatles sort of established their dominance and changed the shape of showbiz and yes. the shape of the charts. Um, but maybe if she recorded that song, uh, you know, that, that she'd have been more closely linked with them. She'd have been maybe the first person to get a cover um, of a Beatles tune. But she uh, talks about this in, in interviews and she said she never heard it. She never, she was not told that um, the song was available and it was Nori Paramore that turned it down. 
And yeah, and and you know the the legend is that in, in that month long tour, you know, more and more of the crowd are turning up to see the Beatles. That they're being kind of edged to more yes. key parts of the bill, uh, like closing the first half and and all the rest. They're not exactly knocking Helen Shapiro off the top, but they're definitely becoming the stars of the show. Yes, you, the, that that wheel is turning, and uh, you you know that would become more more obvious in in sort of subsequent. Uh, tours in 1963, but this is the start of them upstaging the headliner. There is an interesting postscript that uh, later in 63, Helen Shapiro is on Ready Steady Go, lip syncing her then current single, Look Who It Is, which is not going to go into the top 10. No. And uh, the other Beatles are on the show at the have, same yeah, time. Have you, have, you, have you seen that clip? I have seen that clip, yeah. So it's, it's they're standing with their backs to the camera and Shapiro was kind of walking forward and then they turn around and reveal that it's uh, John, George and Ringo are, are there on stage. So they, they, they clearly had a good relationship with her. They're, they're helping her promote uh, the single. Paul is nowhere to be seen um, in that clip. Do you want to tell us why? Well, well that, that is one of the odd, weird bits of Beatles synchronicity because Paul is in another corner of the Ready Steady Go studio and he's judging a dance uh, competition. And uh, the, the Beatles are on the show and Paul is judging this competition and this dancer from the show, Melanie Coe, uh, she takes part in a sort of a type of lip sync type contest where they're dancing and sing, singing to a Brenda Lee song, Let's Jump the Broomstick. And Paul judges, you know, which of these dancer performers is the best. And he gives the uh, the uh, the prize to Melanie Coe. And this would be, you know, a nice fun postscript at the end. But in 1967, Melanie Coe runs away from home as a pregnant teenager. Uh, the story is reported in the papers. The story in the papers is read by Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney turns it into She's Leaving Home, not knowing that it's the girl he had met yeah. a few years earlier on Ready, Steady, Go. Strange Beatles it's coincidence time. Very, very strange. I mean, this is it's a perfect example of that type of coincidence that crops up all the time in, in, in their story. It's also worth talking while they're on this tour about somebody else who is on the bill. And again, he's somebody else who, if you are on this side of the Atlantic and you're of a certain age, he, for many years, was a fixture of... Uh, light entertainment on television and uh, in theatres up and down the country. And that's uh, Kenny Lynch. Yes, Kenny Lynch. T tell us about Kenny Lynch. Kenny Lynch. Um, Kenny Lynch, as you say, is a kind of showbiz, uh, much in the, in, in, in the style of, I suppose, Helen Shapiro, that, that all-round entertainer type. So he, he is on the tour and he is on the bus. And uh, the story is that he hears them uh, rehearsing this and um they, they that sort of falsetto part and he says to them uh, supposedly i think kenny lynch has recently passed away so libel laws don't apply <laughs> um he said you can't do that you sound like a bunch of fairies different time. Uh, different times and they say it's okay the kids will like it um and uh but he's very sort of scathing about this and he doesn't think it's much of a song and doesn't think but he does like the song misery that was earmarked by helen shapiro and whenever that uh gets turned down he is canny enough to record that himself and then he gets a a note in in the history books as being the first uh, artist to release a lennon and mccartney uh cover song yeah, uh, he releases his cover of uh, Misery and it uh, yeah, gets quite a pop arrangement. Um, but uh, Kenny, you know, keeps in with the Beatles. He's on the cover of Band it's, on the Run. 
1973. Yes, yes. Uh, and I, I, I wonder, is that why? Is that, I, I don't know, is he still in their orbit during the 60s or does Paul just suddenly think, oh, I remember Kenny Lynch, he recorded one of our songs. He was the first one to give us a break and he gets him to pose on the cover of Band on the Run. I just think he's just seen as one of those all-round good eggs. Kenny, you know, you know, to give him his due, was extraordinarily talented and capable and able and was a, a trailblazer as a, the, a, a black British entertainer in the 1960s. And yes, and he, he, he was writing his own material, which again yeah. was quite quite unusual. Um, and he wrote songs for others. I did not know this until I was doing the research. He wrote Sha La La yeah. La for the, for the small faces. So. Which is amazing. And he wrote for Scylla Black as well. And uh, what, what's your favourite uh, Kenny Baker um, production, would you say, Stephen? Kenny Baker, I think you've sorry, given it Kenny away. Kenny Lynch, I've given it away. <laughs> you've given it away. Well, you see, I, th- I thought you were going to say uh, Love Crazy, which is the theme for Carry On Emmanuel. I know you're a big fan. <laughs> that movie um, as a theme? As a theme. Um, but yeah, he produced Hilda Baker and Arthur Mullard's version of You're the One That I Want, uh, which reached number 22 in the UK singles chart in September 1978. And this was a parody, shall we say? Is that mm, kind? That's kind. Um, uh, you know, Hilda Baker, Arthur Mollard are the generation before Kenny Lynch, so they're yeah. practically music hall stars. Interwar um, music hall stars, interwar yes. Interwar music hall stars. Um, and they do appear, and I think they sing it live on top of the pops, and it has to be seen to be believed. It is shambolic, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a link up to that. It is hilarious. So... Um... The this is right at the end of uh, February '63. They're on this tour, so the 28th of February, as we said, with our Satnav Precision, the 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 song is uh, written. And what's cute is that according to Helen Shapiro, John and Paul come up to her and say, "Hey, do you want to hear some songs we've written?" And uh, she recounts that she remembers hearing them play uh, "Thank You, Girl" and "From Me to You." Yeah, and she gives they, they, yeah they, she gives "From they, Me to they, You" the thumbs up. Yes, a song they didn't have when they got on the bus. And when they yeah. got off the bus, they had the song. It's and crazy. again, it's it's lovely that, you know, they're not shy. They're like, here's a no. song we've written and we're John and Paul from the Beatles and you're going to enjoy being entertained by us. That's, uh, yeah. they were, they were, <laughs> their, their confidence knew no bounds. And so the next day uh, is obviously March the 1st, 1963. And the tour that they're on hits uh, the Odeon Cinema in Southport, Lancashire, which is the closest that they get to Liverpool. So they pay a visit over to Paul's dad. Yeah, so they they go and see Jim Mack and and they play him the song and because they're uh, sort of saying they they think this is a bit on the complicated side uh, was what Paul thought and he was going to his dad who obviously has a musical background to say what do you think I mean do you, do you think this is and uh, Paul's dad says it's a nice little tune <laughs> yes uh, and it's it goes to show the comfort that you know Paul had with his family that he'd rock up to his dad and with John and sing songs and. Um, you know, there's lots that's been written about that relationship, but it obviously meant a lot to him to uh, to, to play these songs uh, to his dad. Um, you know, also there's an interview from 64 where Paul talks about From Me To You and says, you know, it could be done like an old ragtime tune, which is funny because John thinks it's an old blues type tune. It's a blues tune, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, especially the middle eight, and Paul's right, the middle eight, uh, you know, I've got arms that long to hold you and all that yep. stuff would uh, would meet kind of a ragtime arrangement. But Paul says in 64, you know, in five years time, we might arrange the tunes differently. I love the fact that he's planning to yeah. make this his life's work, writing songs, yeah. playing songs, performing songs, which is not commonly thought of by pop stars um, at the time. Um, and, you know, it's it's a track that 
opens up a little bit of the Beatles melodic talent. So if you break it down to, you know, okay, you've got your verses, if there's anything that you want, you know, you've got the refrain from me to you. And then you have that middle bit. I've got arms that long to hold you. That it's one of those Beatle chord changes, one of those Beatle shifts and the harmonies involved in that, that that's their special sauce, really. This is this is where they they discover the recipe for the special sauce. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And Paul acknowledges this. He he says in his uh, many years from now biography, our songwriting lifted a little with that song. Yeah. So he he regards this as a pivotal song. This is where they start. They kick it up a gear. Um, you know, they're writing good songs before this, but this is where they're really starting to apply that, uh, all, all that they have learned. And again, it comes from the fact that they are absorbing not just rock and roll, you know, they're touring with people like Kenny Lynch and Helen Shapiro. They're, mm. they're, they're, they're steeped in, in that sort of uh, uh, family entertainment tradition, whether it's uh, Till There Was You, uh, you know, m- uh, musicals, they're, they're soaking everything up. And this is where they start applying that. And Paul recognizes that. He does recognize that. And in, in the same set of interviews for the, the, these are in many years from now, he talks about being on a later tour with Roy Orbison and Roy mm. Orbison's in the back and he's writing songs. And one of them is like Pretty Woman. So, you know, they, uh, you know, again, they take themselves seriously that, you know, they're not kowtowing to people who've already had hits or who are already, much, inverted commas, professionals in, the, in this realm or in the songwriting realm. They're, they're saying, yeah, we can do this too. We're part of this tradition. Yeah. Yes, uh, you know, and I mean, I think it, it, it obviously the place to be in 1963, 64 was hanging out on the back of the bus, the tour bus. You know, you <laughs> you, you, you got to see Roy Orbison riding Pretty Woman. Uh, you know, but yeah, they're they're picking all of this up. They're learning from all of this. And it is. They they recognise that they're on a par with this. They're not overawed by it. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it is something I I wonder about with our. 21st century lenses on is uh, how much great art was contributed to the world by pure boredom because there is no boredom left anymore. You know, you could be sitting on the back of your bus these days, just, you know, flicking through Twitter or whatnot, (laughs) killing time. Listening to a podcast. Listening to a podcast. You know, there is, there is no free time or no time to kill. uh, It seems these days. So, you know, you look at, I'm thinking of movies like what's that movie uh, almost famous where they're just sort of yes. on the bus and they're just you know, bored out of their skull. Yeah. Um, you know, why wouldn't you be writing songs or trying to figure out what you're what you're doing next? You know, it's, there's no other uh, better way to kill time, really. There's a lot to be said as a kid for just sitting on a wall. That's how <laughs> uh, we that's how we entertained ourselves in my day. That's right. Yeah. Play a, a stick and a hoop. Right. <laughs> Um, (laughs) So what we said at the start is just how tight this timeline is. So, you know, the the Please Please Me album is due to come out on the 22nd of March and it's now the 1st of March uh, and George Martin is still pressing them for a single. So they've written this track from me to you. The track that they'd originally planned as their third single uh, eventually ends up as the B-side of From Me To You and that's the track Thank You Girl. it's hard to imagine Thank You Girl as being a massive hit single. Yes, uh, it's not in the same league at all. But it, it is interesting that that was the specifically written, specifically designated follow up. You know, there's a quote from uh, John in Anthology to that effect. You know, we had already written this as the follow up and then we got from me to you. We knew that was better. So we relegated it to, to the B side. Um, and uh, but yes, the two the two songs do not really bear much comparison. Yes. And um, 
you know, uh, again, Paul said of Thank You Girl that, you know, uh, we knew that if we wrote a song called Thank You Girl, that a lot of girls who wrote his fan letters would take it as a genuine thank you. So a lot of our songs are really directly addressed to our fans. There's no ifs and buts about that No, one. I mean, they're, uh, they're very explicit about this. And when he says fans, he means girls. <laughs> uh, yes, well, uh, all the uh, chin-stroking men haven't totally gotten on board yet. No. Um, possibly. Um, but w- w- what I'm not sure about, and I don't know, does anyone really know, is there was a a studio session booked for the 5th of March to record the next single. And I don't know whether George Martin was aware of the existence of Thank You Girl or whether he just expected them to, I don't know what forewarning he had for the recording session on the 5th of March about what they were going to do. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they were coming in to record a single, but it's not clear. I haven't seen whether, uh, you know, it's, they can't have, played him from me to you before they turned out, you know, they were on tour. No. So they can't have, they can't have uh, sent an MP3 down the line to let him <laughs> hear it or uh, put a cassette tape in the post, even probably not uh, doable. Um, so he's, he's hearing this for the first time uh, on that day. And it shows how serious Parlophone and particularly George are taking the Beatles. Like they're not waiting to see how well the album does to, to get a third single out there. They're getting their third single prepped while the album is happening simultaneously. So if you're playing along at home, the recording session for From Me To You is on the 5th of March. This is five days after the song comes into existence. So the Beatles yeah. throughout their career, um, you know, nothing uh, steeled their minds better than a, a good timeline, you know, <laughs> that yeah, they were very efficient. Yeah, a, a good yeah. deadline would really get them going. And uh, so on the 5th of March, they're in EMI Studio 2. Uh, it's a three-hour afternoon session, and uh, the, they're there to record both the A-side and the B-side. And it's certainly the first time, as we said a second ago, that George is hearing from me to you. And it, 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 it is a credit to George's confidence in them that, you know, he doesn't have like he had before, uh, you know, a how do you do it up his sleeve just in case yes, they don't deliver. He's, he's just assuming at this point, okay, I, I can trust these guys to, to bring something in. Like, what if they hadn't? Yes, I mean, the, the, it, it, it is that they've gone from that position where he lists, you know, the first single, he thinks, no, no, we're, we're, I'm going to have to get someone in to write something hmm. to, um, you know, being absolutely confident if they turn up with something we can make this a single. And I think part of it must have been his confidence in them as songwriters, but also his confidence in himself as an arranger. Because one of the things that you notice across Mm. these various takes is his input into the arrangement of the song. And uh, Lennon remarked in 1980 when he was going through his, his sort of back catalogue. He said, you know, it was very bluesy and we almost didn't record it on, but once George uh, Martin had scored it with the harmonica part, et cetera, it was all right. Yeah. Um, so again, you, you get a sense that George Martin must be reasonably confident that if they bring in the raw material that together they can uh, work something up and confident enough that uh, uh, that it'll hit I, the spot. I, that it'll hit the spot. Yeah, that, yeah. that they that they will let him do that. Confident yeah. enough in, in in their collective ability to work together. That so, they will take take direction. So they arrive on the fifth of March, nineteen sixty three, uh, into year two, as we said, and they start uh, laying down. First of all, uh, from me to you. And we have some of the, well, if, if you're in bootleg zone, everything is out there from the session. If you're in the official bootleg zone, the oft overlooked 
2013 release, uh, the 1963 bootleg recordings, yes. which is um, available. Uh, uh, it came out for, for sale on MP3s and it's on some, but not all streaming services. Um, but it's an official Beatles uh, collection of studio tracks released in 2013 for copyright extension purposes. And you can hear uh, takes one, two and five of From Me To You in that collection. But essentially they, they work through a number of takes before they get to a keeper. And you, you can listen to takes one and two in as I said, this uh, 1963 bootlegs collection. And it's um, it's the same song, but different, obviously. They haven't totally nailed down the, the start. And the main big difference is George, instead of a harmonica, is kind of playing that introductory riff. Yes, it's a lead guitar part um, uh, is in the introduction. And it's slightly slower. Yeah. And I suppose that ties in with John saying, you know, well, it was a, it was a kind of bluesier feel. Um, to it um and uh you can you can as i say you can hear in the bootlegs that this sort of just develops um they're working it out and they they pretty much nail it by take four and then there's a little guitar fluff at the end so they keep they keep going and then take five there's an instrumental break that george martin is suggesting and again you, you you hear that input from george martin and the striking thing is they are taking direction um yes they're working with him it's not like at the beginning when they said you should record this and they you know they, they're pushing back against that they they realize what they've got here in this arranger and there's also some automatic understanding about what's not working so george is doing the uh, you know very yeah. sweet kind of shadowy yeah. type guitar it's introduction very, yes it's very like the shadows and uh you know what you kind of see through successive takes is that ringo is kind of getting a groove ringo in take one, you know, Ringo's keeping time, but yeah. you can't really dance to it. Take two, Ringo's getting a bit of a dance. You can actually start to tap your feet to take two. Yeah. Uh, and then they gradually speed it up a little bit. And what you also notice across those early tracks is, you know, they kind of know track one is a bit of a guide because by take five, John's vocals are much more forceful. And yes. Paul is very much the the sugary harmony to John's lead vocal. And, you know, some of that is... I would have to imagine automatic that they just realize what sounds good. Yes, it comes across that way. You know, you get you get specific things coming in from George Martin, but then the band are just feeling their way towards what will be the final product. And it's interesting that it's George Martin that that says harmonica. That's what we need. Because yeah. again, that's sort of on brand. Yes. Um, you know, the harmonica sound, the lovely do sound, that's uh, kind of that that is the early beatle sound so yep. again it's it's a, it's a twist on that uh you know you, you if you have a hit well then you just replicate that and george martin isn't going down that line but he's saying right well there's a tone or there's a sound that's what the audience know you for so that's immediately recognizable and we we'll, we'll fly that in that's exactly it i mean take seven is the one that they is a full complete take it's got the speed it's got the beat and it's uh on top of take seven that they start to do some harmonies and the harmonica as well. And yeah, from me to you is this portal between please, please me Beatles through to, you know, late 63 Beatles. And the harmonica is the bit that comes from, you know, the please, please me era. And it's those odd chords in the middle that kind of lead you into late 63 Beatles as well. So it's pulling at both ends. Uh, It's like a portal from the start of the year to the end of the year. I think that's ex- that's exactly right. It's 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 the kind of link section between the two the two stages of their career. We haven't got to the fully fledged Beatlemania reaction or the Beatlemania sound yet. That really, I suppose, comes with "She Loves You." This yep. is this is the transition. 
So the two things that get overdubbed onto the song are the the Beatles singing na 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 at the intro, but also the uh, I know it sounded just like them. I know I, I was going to say I looked up there. It was it was it was like Paul and had come into the room. It was, and uh, uh, and the harmonica, John's harmonica. Where who are his main influences for that? Well, well this is this is a it is a kind of bluesy style, um, and uh, the main person who takes credit or who has credit foisted upon him is a guy called Delbert McClinton. Yeah. Um, he's a sort of blues player out of Lubbock, Texas. Everybody comes from Lubbock, Texas. Lubbock, Texas is an extraordinary well of yeah. musical talent. Yeah. We should go and record there. Absolutely. Um, What's uh, stopping us? Oh, yeah. I uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he uh, McClinton, there was a song by uh, Bruce Chanel. I suppose it's Chanel or is it Chanel? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, so. I like to say Chanel. Is it Chanel? <laughs> um, hey, baby, that yeah. song um, it was a hit in 1962, and, uh, and uh, McClinton uh, plays harmonica on that. And and they toured, and um, you know he's sat Lennon down, presumably on that tour where the Beatles were were on that tour, and showed them how how to sort of the finer points of blues harmonica playing. And he he does say that he he sort of says well it's chiseled in stone that i taught lennon how to play harmonica john said show me something i was in a unique position because there just weren't a lot of people playing harmonica in popular music you kind of think larry adler is the uh you know yes um the harmonica player but that kind of blues harmonica ringo interestingly covered hey baby in yeah. 1976's rotogravure and for some reason he didn't get john to play the harmonica on it. john was pity, on those it? john was on those sessions but uh he he didn't ask him to repeat that so that's all i know about delbert mcclinton <laughs> so they start work at 2 p.m uh the song is complete at 4 p.m on top of that take seven they do about six more passes to get the harmonica and the da 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 dums on top of it and then yep. two hours in they are done and the attention switches over to getting uh thank you girl down and again there's there's take one of the thank you girl recording is on the 1963 bootleg release from 2013 and what you can kind of tell from listening to take one of thank you girl is that it's a song that's much more bedded in it's not a five-day old song no they kind of know how it goes and it's pretty straightforward it's also a little bit boring <laughs> it's well you, you you've also you've got to think that they knew by this stage it's a B-side. Yes. You know, they, they know this isn't the single, that if they had gone in to do it as a single, you think it probably would have had more work. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they've got the single. They're very happy with that. So this is, this is the B-side. And like all Beatles songs, you know, stop and listen to Ringo. So for Thank You Girl, Ringo really does give it a drive that yeah. isn't immediately obvious if somebody was playing it to you on an acoustic guitar. I, I think Ringo really is what makes that song, what lifts the song. Yeah. Um, and so that's the 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. session. They did also have an evening session on that day. And yeah, it's funny what song they work on, isn't it? Yeah. One after 909. One after 909 makes its first appearance on that day. And it's, um, you know, they work quite extensively on it that evening. Now, I don't know, was there any notion ever of one after 909 being single material? I, 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 I don't think don't so. Think I think so. this is I, I, I think this is just seen as we have the studio time. What know, have the we got? Album, yeah, the first album's about to come out. Uh, let's see if we can start laying stuff down for the next album. Yeah. Um, because supposedly they almost uh, they were considering working on what goes on, which doesn't oh, yeah. come out until doesn't go out until sixty five. 
Yeah, yep. Um, so one after nine and nine gets put down and taped that day, and that's the version that eventually gets revealed on Anthology One, uh, twenty-two years later in nineteen ninety-five. Um, and so once. The Beatles are done in Abbey Road. There's a couple of little editing and tweaking and mixing that needs to be done. Um, the, the single is ostensibly coming out in mono. They do do a stereo mix at the time because I think it's a bit uncertain as to whether this might be headed uh, for a second album. If possible, it wasn't yes. finished in yes. time to go on to Please Please Me because that's been finished. The It's being lacquered and pressed up. It's three weeks away from going into the shops. And, um, you know, it's it's they're mixing it eight days before Please Please Me comes out. And uh, so it's possible that George Martin might have done a stereo mix because it was earmarked for a future album. Uh, but that never happened. And that stereo mix kind of disappeared. It sort of disappears. So the, the mono version has that harmonica riff. The stereo mix apparently didn't. Yeah. Um, but yes, it wasn't needed for the album. So maybe it's lying somewhere in a vault, but it hasn't come out yet. And uh, certainly they couldn't find it when they went looking for it. So written on the 28th of February, 1st of March, recorded on the 5th of March, uh, the Please Please Me album is due out on the 22nd of March and the From Me To You single is earmarked to come out on the 11th of April. And we're going to talk about its release after this break. End of part one, intermission. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So From Me To You is released on the 11th of April, 1963, right into the Beatles' very, very busy year. And it's undoubtedly... Uh, their first chart-topping song. I know we've talked about the controversy already, but let's just call it their first number yeah. one. Um, it uh, The song it replaced at number one, however, was uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, How Do You Do It? Another one of these odd Beatles synchronicity moments. The song that the Beatles had recorded but rejected had been eventually given to... Um, you know, cavern mates, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and it had made it to number one. Yes, uh, Jerry Marsden uh, seized the chance to record this, and uh, it was written by Mitch Mitchell, and he was convinced it was going to be number one. George Martin was convinced it was going to be number one, and it was only that the Beatles were determined uh, to get their own material, uh, their own original material, that they they turned it down. It's it's. Difficult, perhaps, looking back to 1963 now to, to appreciate just how huge Jerry and the Pacemakers yeah. actually were. They, they, they were the first uh, of those sort of Liverpool bands, the first Epstein 
managed bands to get a number one single with that song, How Do You Do It? So they kind of pipped the Beatles to the post um, with that. Um, their next two singles, I Like It and You'll Never Walk Alone, also reached number one. So the first three singles all hit number one. And I don't think that happened again until Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Is that correct? Would that be right? That is right. That's a quiz question. Yeah. Um, Who did it next? Oh. Jive Bunny. I wish you hadn't told me about that. That, That's the 90s were a terrible, (laughs) a wasteland. The 90s were a wasteland. Um, The the other thing that I hadn't realized until I started looking at this was uh, their original name was the Mars Bars. Yeah, because of Marsden, I guess. Is that, yeah, oh, it's yeah, just a pun, yeah. Uh, no, that didn't that, dawn that, on you. That, that, that hadn't occurred, Jerry to me, Marsden and was... the Mars bars. I'm sure, hey, Mars bar. I'm sure somebody said that to him one day and it seemed like hilarity for yeah. half an hour. Well, apparently, yes. uh, uh Cadbury's <laughs> or whoever got in touch and they had to uh, they, they, they had to do that. Um, but they you know, so they were huge in in kind of 63, um, 64, their fourth single i'm the one got to number two and mm-hmm. it was kept off the number one spot by uh the searchers needles and pins i think that's fair enough yeah uh, that that was the case but again they had some success uh in the states in 64 uh don't let the sun catch you crying was a was a big hit but by 67 they had sort of faded away and they they became a feature on the cabaret circuit and uh all these charts. Um, Paul does a nice cover of Don't yeah, Let the Sun Catch he, That's on um, uh, Trip in the Life Fantastic, isn't it? Yes, it's a soundcheck version and it's it's gorgeous uh, uh, song. Um, and uh, but I say they 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 did, I think, have a decent enough career uh, on the oldies circuit. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the Beatles ace in the hole in 1963 was their songwriting, but it is worth pointing yeah. out that Jerry Marsden wrote Ferry Cross the Mersey and anybody who writes that song has done enough, if you ask he's, me. He's done enough, yes. Yeah. And uh, Jerry, uh, he sadly passed away in 2020. He did, he did. But he was certainly, uh, you know, a great face of Liverpool. And, and that song is a, is a fantastic gift to the world. Um, so Jerry and the Pacemakers are knocked off number one from me to you. And what is really important to point out is just how much the Beatles start to truly, truly dominate. So From Me To You comes out on the 11th of April 1963. It gets to number one by the end of the month on the 30th of April 1963. It is number one for seven weeks and it's replaced by another Lennon and McCartney uh, co-write for Billy J. Kramer before it gets knocked off again by She Loves You. So the Beatles start to dominate. But what's also happening in the background is that the Please Please Me album which if you're paying attention has come out at the end of March, that also gets to number one on the 5th of May, 1963. So by the start of May, 63, the Beatles are number one in the singles charts, number one in the albums charts, and their album chart dominance goes on for years. Um, Please Please Me spends 30 weeks at number one in the album charts. It's replaced by With the Beatles that spends 21 weeks on the album charts. If you were to follow the album charts from May, 1963, up until the end of 1967, the only acts that get to number one are the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan, The Sound of Music, and The Monkeys. And the Beatles are predominantly number one in the album charts for the next four and a half years. So it's this, again, from me to you, is this pivot point where they go from being a big band to being this kind of sensation, this kind of phenomenon. Yes. And, uh, you know, they are across that spring into summer of 63. They are the number one band and they start, 
it's not just a question of moving up touring bills or it, it, it's also the fact that they're doing their BBC radio recordings that they start to just be everywhere. Yes, yes. Uh, I, 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 and I say, I think in, in all of that that follows, this song gets slightly lost. It does get um, lost. You know, even even in the UK as a as a as their first number one, it it, it gets forgotten because it's so chaotic. What what follows? Yeah. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, it is this line in the sand. You know, before this, you know, we were talking about Helen Shapiro having hits. You know, you, you look at the charts and the album charts. There's also people like Cliff in the Shadows and all those other guys. They then move to a different place. And as I yes. said, you look at the album charts. It's the Stones and Dylan for the next two or three years that are selling all these records. There's a definite before and after from what happens in April, May, 1963. Yes, it, it changes. It, it absolutely changes uh, the landscape uh, in the UK and then in the US. So let's talk about what happens in the US because, you, you know, we, we've done a couple of you know episodes looking at uh, some aspects of this. But, you know, the notion that the Beatles were not uh, an, an, an entity or didn't have a presence in the US in 1963 is not, strictly speaking, true. And there were people trying to get them into the charts. And from me to you, in essence, does make it into the US charts in 1963, albeit not a very high position, but it's definitely moving. Yes, yes. I mean, that, the, the, the legend is they appear on the Ed Sullivan show in, in early 64 and then bang, that's it. Uh, yeah. And up to that point, they were completely uh, unknown. Um, you're probably going to need a pencil and piece of paper uh, to, to write down all this. There's, there's, um, I'm sure people out there will be familiar with the various books that uh, Bruce Spicer has written about the US catalog and the release. And, you know, I would recommend you check out um, well, any of those, uh, any of Bruce's books on the US catalog, but but briefly summarized, um, VJ Records had ended up with the rights uh, to the singles they had uh, released, Please Please Me. And despite the fact that that didn't really catch on, uh, they then chose to release From Me to You. Um, they had a right of first refusal on that. So it wasn't the case here, I think, that Capital turned it down, but rather it was never actually offered to Capital because VJ um had the right to it so they uh released from me to you with thank you girl on the b-side uh 27th of may 1963 cashbox magazine give it pick of the week um but it only sold 4,000 copies and didn't didn't chart anywhere yes um the next thing that happens to that particular song is that uh del shannon releases a cover version in june 63 and at that point vj put out the original again and they kind of stamp it you know the original hit desperately trying to get uh, some traction um it does because of airplay uh for some reason in la um mm -hmm. it, it 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 makes the bubbling under uh chart for three weeks peaks at number 116 uh on the 10th of august and that i think is the first time that the beatles appear on a national uh chart in uh Billboard, it, yeah. yeah, it goes on to sell approximately 20, 22,000 copies, but it gets no higher than 116. So the, they are literally bubbling under. under. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, you'd have to be pretty proud of yourself if you were uh, somebody who uh, went out and bought, please, or from me to you in 1963, six months later when they're on Ned Sullivan, you could be 
you know, I was into them before they I were cool. I was into them before them, yeah. Um, let's talk about Del Shannon a little bit, because how does he end up, you know, if he's a big American star, how does he end up recording this British hit single? He got to hear the song. Uh, mm. uh, so on the 18th of April, 1963, they the Beatles were playing the Swinging Sound 63, uh, which was... <laughs> oh, we laughed, which, but, you know, you'd laughed, want to be there. You'd want to be there. Uh, this was at the Royal Albert Hall in London, and they played From Me To You and Twist and Shout. And Del Shannon was also on the bill, and he spoke to Lennon afterwards, and he said, I'm going to record that. Um, that'll give you some... Uh, exposure and sure enough in June 63 Big Top Records that's a great name uh, (laughs) released his version of From Me To You and um, it got to number 77 so that's pretty noticeable too you know irrespective of the Beatles version that he gets it into the top 100 so their first big hit in America is as writers not um, performers yep Uh, so number 77 and uh, you know Del Del Shannon was a, a big enough star that, mm. uh, you know, that would have got some some traction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's what's nice about this story is, you know, he's on the bill with the Beatles and he could have just been blowing smoke at them, you know, to say, yeah, I'll, yeah. Re- I'll record your song. But actually he goes off. It, you know, that gig is on the 18th of April. You know, two months later, Del Shannon's version of From Me To You is 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 out and it's heading up the American charts. So, again, yeah. this really quick turnaround of events in 63 is crazy. Um, Del Shannon stayed in a Beatle orbit, really, didn't he? Yes. Well, he stayed in Jeff Lynne's orbit. Um, That's an important so, yeah, orbit to stay in. It's an important orbit. Yes. Uh, when I mean, I have a very clear memory of this. Whenever Roy Orbison uh, passed away, Del Shannon was rumoured to be the replacement in the travelling Wilburys. And I don't think that was ever really on the cards, but certainly the music press at the time. And I suppose there's a similarity in in, in those kind of early 60s hits that, that Del well, Shannon was having with, with Roy Orbison. He was also in Tom Petty's orbit. So if you know the Tom Petty song, Running Down a Dream, yes, which is produced by Jeff Lynne, Del Shannon is name checked in that. Myself and Del were singing Little Runaway, you know, when they're driving yes. driving down the freeway or whatever it is. That's so, right. That's right. So Del Shannon is in the, the Wilbury's orbit at the end of the 80s and Jeff is working on them. Um, Del Shannon's album Rock On, which doesn't come out until after Del Shannon sadly dies. And the Wilburys do record a version of Runaway. Um, yes. That, that, that turned up as a B-side. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much, you know, that it, it strikes me listening to it, it's principally George and Jeff on yeah. that, that, that track, I would think. So uh, From Me To You has this bubbling under life in the US as a number 77 hit for Del Shannon and as a number 116 hit for the Beatles in uh, uh, July and August of 1963. But of course, we all know what happens to the Beatles next in the US. And that's, you know, uh, on the 26th of December, 63, I Want to Hold Your Hand comes out. It hits number one after three weeks. Capital's biggest selling single ever. And Ed Sullivan happens in February 64. So VJ still owning the rights, uh, decide very quickly that they're going to put uh, From Me To You out again. But they, oddly enough, they put it on a B-side. They- yeah, they, they, they put it on the B-side to Please Please Me. Um, that, that comes out in January 64. And you think that that's an odd... You know, well, it's almost like two... a double A side, please, please yeah. me from me to you. And they're just nobody knows, I guess, the length that uh, this thing is going to last for. So if it's a cash in, throw everything you've got at it. I suppose. So. I mean, they held back Twist and Shout. Do you want to know a secret? But uh, they, they, they paired these two. But I mean, in one sense, it, you know, that was 
Oh, geez, you'd be happy buying that single. That was the right right thing to do. Um, So, yeah, as a B-side, it entered the charts uh, on the 7th of March, uh, and it got to uh, number three under She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah. So again, the 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 airplay rules made made it get into the top uh, top five, and um, it uh, also appears on like it has an odd history in the US. We we've talked that it's a standalone single in the UK, so it's not earmarked for any album. But it doesn't properly appear in any US album for a while either, does it? No. Uh, it just it just seems to disappear, and I think I think this is maybe one of the reasons why it gets it gets. Uh, slightly slightly lost uh, mm. in 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 the shuffle um you know it's one of those stray album tracks and it's odd to see why capital who sort of you know created these frankenstein versions of albums and and, and put tracks but it didn't uh, it it actually made its first uh appearance uh, in album appearance uh, anywhere on the Canadian album Twist and Shout in 1964. Mm. Um, and it turns up on BJ's um, album Jolly What? England's Greatest Recording Stars, The Beatles and Frank Ifield on stage. I don't have that album. No, it's not. It's not exactly a revolver, that one. Um, but if, if you want to have a look at uh, early Canadian releases, which are, if you're into that sort of thing, fascinating. There's yep. a book by Pier- Piers Hemmings and The Beatles in Canada, which Piers will tell you sets out definitively how far ahead of the America that Canada was in catching on uh, to the to the Beatle media. Beatle media started in Canada long before the Ed Sullivan Show is the basic thesis of that book. Yes, Piers is an expert in this regard. Friend of the show. We can call him a friend of the show, can't we? We can call him a friend of the I show. I think so. Um, so for me to you, because it's licensed to VJ, you know, it, it doesn't, um, the rights don't actually revert back uh, to capital until the end of 64, uh, October 64. Um, so capital are free to put on an album in the US after that point, but they don't. You know, they, the early Beatles capital album comes out in early 65 and From Me To You is missing on it. In fact, it takes up until the 1973 release of the Red Album, 62 to 66, for a capital slash EMI release of the Beatles to feature From Me To You in the US of A. Yes, yeah, uh, it would have been quite funny if it had popped up on the Hey Jude album in 1970, which was the kind of scooping up of, of perhaps perhaps it was considered too retro, even even for Klein to try and make some cash off it in 1970. Um, and in the UK, it doesn't appear on an album until the famous a collection of Beatles oldies in 66, which is kind of the proto past masters of its day when it scoops up all those yes. standalone singles to, you know, uh, you kind of think if you were a record buying punter in the UK in the uh, 1965, where could you get a copy of From Me To You? You either went and got the single, which was still in print, or you waited until 66 until a collection of Beatles oldies comes out. Yeah, yeah. Um, It does turn up as an instrumental uh, From Me To You fantasy in the US. Yes. Help soundtrack, uh, which is when Ringo's sleeping and they're trying to cut the ring off his finger. It's used as a little bit of background. (laughs) <laughs> and it also, I mean, it becomes obviously an intrinsic part of their stage show. They do so many shows in in 63 and also so many uh, radio shows. So, you know, we said how they subconsciously realized early on that uh, they were inspired by the enemy's letters page from mm. uh, us to you or from you to us or whatever it is. But they repurpose uh, from me to you as from us to you as the theme tune to their BBC radio show, which we hear on Life, the BBC volume one. 
Yes, yes. I mean, they did. They they did sixteen. They recorded sixteen performances of the song for, just for the BBC. Good lord. Um, so we talked about when it came out. The, the first performance that they did for BBC Radio was on the 1st of April, uh, which is broadcast on the 22nd, which is just shortly 10, 11 days after the single was released. And they recorded a second version <laughs> uh, for a later episode that was to air on the 13th of May. You would think... Uh, you think they just used the same version. They just, just used the same <laughs> version. Why, why would you... Know, we're gonna, we've recorded it and now we need another one. Uh, you know, I don't I know. Maybe there's there some, some kind of musicians' union rule. Was... I, would, I would say that was, prob- that was probably it. But there were 13 television performances in the UK featuring the song. We now list them all. No, we them all. <laughs> well, it, it goes to show that, you know, uh, you know, in 1963, there wasn't the, the, you know, panoply of media outlets that we have today. Yeah. And for them to do 13 TV appearances of the show goes to kind of give an, uh, an idea of how they were just everywhere, or that they were yeah. the hot ticket um, number one single, number one album, and they're doing 13 television performances. You know, one hand washes the other. No wonder they were huge, but... Also, yes. they were yeah. they were good television you know absolutely and it it, it lasts and you know it stays in their repertoire across the year so so it starts out at that april bbc recording it's still there for the uh, royal command performance on the 4th of, of november the rattle mm-hmm. your jewelry uh and they include it in the second ed sullivan show uh, yeah. which was the 16th of february 1964 um the last time uh, the last TV performance is the Around the Beatles TV special that I think we've um, touched on before, which was um, uh, 6th of May, 8th of June, 1964, and eventually was shown in America in, in November. I think have we talked about that Around the Beatles much um, before? I don't think we have. I mean, it's, 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 an, uh, it's a curious thing, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not out there officially, but, you know, you'd think it would make a decent... I yes, I mean DVD type thing. You yeah, you would think anybody involved in that would be quite happy to clear the rights to let the Beatles put that out officially. So it's again, it's one of those um, uh, trying to marry what the Beatles have brought to entertainment with the sort of variety show. So it's a TV special. Um, It's got the Beatles, PJ Proby, the Vernon Girls, long. John Baldry, Millie, Scylla Black, Sounds Incorporated. Uh, it's a great little kind of snapshot um, until you get to their spoof of uh, Midsummer, <laughs> Night's, Midsummer Night's Dream. And I think I think there is some footage of that um, kind of kicking around. There but, is, yeah. Uh, the, the songs that um, they pre-record the songs. Yeah. Uh, and then they mime on camera to what they have pre-recorded. And again, you, you, that must be a musician's union. Yeah. Role. And some of those recordings are on Anthology One, um, so uh, and so from that TV special. So I want to be your man, Long Tall Sally, and Boys with an edited version of Shout come from that recording session for that TV yeah. show. So there is some of it out there already. Um, uh, yeah. So in sixty three, sixty four, uh, from me to you is still a very prominent song, but it's definitely locked into that first phase of of Beatles music. It does reappear, though, like everything tended to reappear in January sixty nine. Yes, yes. So this is just a uh, their their um, uh, January the seventh, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, they're at Twickenham, and they suddenly launch into From Me To You. Uh, it's not a serious no. attempt uh, to record it. I mean, not, nowadays you would have, you know, everybody re-records their hits in, in a modern yep. style, you know, but um, but they just, it, it, 
Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking John Martin, but uh, anyway, oh, that okay. shows Jeff Lynn. shows the yeah. Ah, uh, Jeff Lynn. All yeah, roads lead to happened Jeff. to Jeff Lynn. Um, but yeah, it wasn't really a serious attempt. But it's interesting that they just kind of default back to larking around with these things, you know, when they're, when they're bored. You know? It's hard to imagine what it must have meant being them in January 69, what a song like From Me To You must have felt like to them, whether it was comforting, whether they thought it just felt like another world, whether it felt anachronistic. It's really strange how different they were in January 69. They they do when they when they launch into those and things like, you know, hello, hello, little girl and things like that, you know, they, it, it, it does seem that they're slightly self-mocking yeah you know that they they do realize that just just how far they've come and that they're they're two they're i was gonna say they're two essentially different bands they're different people yeah absolutely so the song appears as we mentioned in a couple of different places uh you know collection of oldies is uh, the first uk release um and there's you know down over the years there's a couple of different uh versions of for me to to look for so you know past masters is probably the first proper compilation of it Yes, uh, you need to go out and collect them all. Um, you do. You, you know, the, the first one, the first one, as you say, is on collection of oldies. And we, we mentioned that, uh, you know, when the song was originally recorded, they did a stereo yep. mix. And, and whenever this this compilation uh, came out, they needed a stereo mix. So they just went to get it and it wasn't there. Um, so they took the original two track master tape and turned that into a stereo mix. And they just did that kind of split between the vocals and, and the instruments, except the uh, harmonica and vocals and the things that were overdubbed uh, disappear. All oh, right. Um, so uh, the harmonica does not appear on the stereo mix of the song. So as early as 1966, people would have been thinking, I've got to go and buy the <laughs> mono version and I've got to go and buy the stereo album version. Um, but that then stereo version is, is the version that uh, sort of pops up on uh, 1962 uh, to 66, the Red yeah. Album and on Past Masters. So it doesn't have the kind of synchronized harmonica passage. So the, the version you're hearing there lacks the, the sort of definitive early Beatles bluesy harmonica part. Well, certainly I would have first owned it in the late 80s, you know, Past Masters Volume mm -hmm. 1, which is the mono version. And, yeah. um, you know, if you are buying a, a copy of one, uh, the compilation album today, because it counts as a one, you're getting a mono mix with harmonica on the modern versions of one. Yes. And it seems yes. like most things on one, slightly remixed, slightly tweaked, but it is still essentially in mono. They fixed it. They, they did a little bit. And... Um, there's also versions of From Me To You on Anthology One, so recorded in TV studio in Stockholm. And although From Us To You is on Live at the BBC, uh, the actual From Me To You doesn't appear until Live at the BBC Volume 2 on air, the 2013 release. Uh, am I miss I'm sure I'm missing something, Stephen. No, am I, am I missing any, any further releases? You're missing, you're going down. Um, no, I, I don't uh, think <laughs> I, oh, I guess I there's the Christmas, so. there's the Christmas album, which is a nod to there's From Me To You as well. Uh, yes, which is from from then to you, which is not a particularly good pun of a pun. <laughs> but, um, but yes, uh, it was clearly the, the Christmas compilation album uh, that, that, that 
came out uh, at the end of the decade. Um, but, you know, so I think it's it's a song, I don't, I don't know that you can even say they regard it as being particularly important. Uh, they do at the time, you know, it's clearly John, uh, Paul, they, they in terms of songwriting, but in terms of delivering the success, uh, the Beatlemania success, that, that, that kind of overarching success, I think even they probably don't regard this particularly highly, mm. but uh, but I think we're here to talk about it. Well, it's the last of the. I convince people that it is. It's it's the last of the early harmonica beat. kind of type songs. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that drove us to talk about the song today was that you know, at the end of 2019, yourself and myself were in the Liverpool Arena to see. Let me check his name here. Paul McCartney play yes. a homecoming concert the week before Christmas. And one of the, you know, if you've seen a Paul McCartney gig, you know, he plays a few Beatles tunes. He's not shy. Um, no. But right in the midst of this gig in a sort of a pseudo acoustic type session, the big surprise to me that night was he sings From Me to You. And what was your take on that? He was singing it to me. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I think like you, I had deliberately not gone looking for set lists uh, yeah. ahead of the show. So I didn't really know what the, the format was going to be. Um, and uh, I think I knew there was an acoustic section. But if you had said to me going in, mm. what is the song? What is the Beatles song? If there's any song he might do that will really kind of emotionally connect with you and, and get a response this wouldn't, from me to you, would not have been yeah. on that list. I mean, it was nowhere on that list. And as soon as he started to play it, I just, all the hair on the back of my neck st stood up on end. I, it was an incredibly emotional uh, experience um, to hear him sing that. Probably the most emotional experience of that night. I mean, the connection of that. It, it was definitely, um, you know, Paul's always great live, but to to sort of walk the streets of Liverpool where, you know, you're walking down uh, by the docks past a statue of the Beatles and you're going into the arena and he's singing a song that, you know, many years earlier, he'd driven to his dad up the road to get his opinion on. Uh, and it's, you know, the way he was singing it, 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 you know, a lot of Paul's live stuff is very straightforward, carbon copies for from me yeah. to you he had acoustic it a little bit he changed it a little bit and yeah I didn't know he was going to sing it and uh, it just it really stood out it was really sensationally performed and you know you're kind of yeah you're sitting in Liverpool going that's the guy who wrote that song yeah. singing it in this town and you know yeah I expected him to do Hey Jude I didn't expect him to do that and it was the song that stayed with me once I walked out of the arena I think I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I saw him the next year in yeah. in America, and he included it again. And I suspect I might have been the only person in the in the auditorium that was having that <laughs> same experience because it did it didn't get the same reaction. Yeah, you know the song that got the big reaction there is "All My Loving" um, yeah. because that's the Ed Sullivan song. Um, it got a good response, but it didn't get the kind of reaction uh, that that. From, from everybody else that, that it seemed to get connect with me and particularly in Liverpool. Yeah, it, it was as I said, you know, maybe maybe Liverpool added to the whole uh, specialness of it, but it was, um, yeah, it was a it was a, a fantastic moment. Uh, and uh, I think it's the seed that led us back to it. And it was, it was December 2018, not 2019 that we were there. Yeah. And he 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 says, you know, Paul, Paul does 
say the first time I thought we really made it was when I was lying in bed one morning and I heard a milkman whistling from me to you. And then he goes, actually, I'm sure I once heard a bird whistling it as well. I swear I did. <laughs> you know, did, did they have lady milkmen? Is that what he's uh, talking about? <laughs> I have to um, admit, oh no. I, 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 I think, that, uh, but you know, that goes to show exactly how important the song was, that they were trying to get the balance right between their songwriting craft, their artistic expression, the identity of the Beatles, uh, what it meant to be popular and what it meant to write songs for the people. They were trying to master all of those things at the same time. And in the blink of an eye, in the midst of a Helen Shapiro tour, you know, a song goes from not existing to existing in the space of a week. It's one minutes and 56 seconds long, that song, and it contains multitudes. Does. I it can't does. add anything to that. I can't <laughs> add anything to that. But what do you think, everybody? Um, look, from me to you, go back and listen to it again. That's why we're always here talking about this kind of stuff. Tell us what you think. Um, we're available in all the usual places. We're on Twitter at BeatlesPod, uh, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, our shiny website, nothingisrealpod.com, which has uh, links to all the different places where you can download us, YouTube links, um, playlist links for new and past episodes uh, and other ways of staying in touch. You know, we're dipping our toes into, I don't know, are we, TikTok. What, what is TikTok? Does anyone really know what TikTok is? I don't know. I have um, no idea. What but just go through nothingisrealpod.com and it'll link you to all our, our, our good stuff there. Um, but uh, yeah, let's go back and dig out your seven inch single and put on From Me To You. Um, but as usual, for Nothing Is Real, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST+, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.